I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Amish Adalja to our broadcast today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, he is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. He's focused intensely on emerging infectious diseases and pandemic preparedness and biosecurity. Um, you know, we've done a ton of programs on COVID, and typically it's a pretty dark subject in just kind of recapping the American response. But one of the lights is the work that you are doing at Johns Hopkins in tracking it beyond tracking the pandemic and being the most relied upon resource to see, unfortunately, the body count and the infections. What, what are the most important metrics that um, you as a scientist uh, want to impart to the American people? The best metric is really trying to understand what's going on in your community with control. And the way to look at that is looking at the percent positivity of tests that are returning back. How hard is it to look for a positive case? Is it really hard in your community or is it really easy? That gives you some idea of the level of control. Then I think the next measure I look at is how well are your hospitals coping? What percentages of their beds are occupied by COVID patients? What percentage of their ICU beds are occupied by COVID patients? And what percentage of ventilators are being used by COVID patients? That's also very important. And then looking at your health department statistics, if these are available, one thing I look at is what percentage of cases are occurring from known chains of transmission, people that were already on someone's radar as maybe going to be popping positive, and how many are because they don't know where they got it. That also tells you how much community spread is going on. So those are the statistics I think are really important for the general public to keep in mind when they're sifting through news articles and news reports. Uh, it's very confusing, but I think those to me are the most important measures for how I gauge a community's resilience to this disease. And tracking those numbers, if you are rigorously tracking them and heeding the social distancing measures, that would have been a way for this country to mitigate, if not contain, but mitigate the crisis so that it is under control and not raging in almost all 50 states. I mean, had we been keeping track of those numbers and, and then heeding them with the proper scientific and community behavior, this could have been under control. Well, the problem was early on in the pandemic, we had no way of knowing those numbers because we had such a fragmented and dysfunctional testing system, and we're still kind of suffering the consequences of that, that there was no way to know who was infected, who wasn't. We actually couldn't test people that had clear signs and symptoms of COVID-19 because they weren't from China or because they didn't have lower respiratory tract signs. They only maybe had a sore throat. And that led chains of transmission to get set off that became undetected until they spilled into hospitals in places like New York City and Detroit, and New Orleans and Seattle. And then we were in a crisis. So if we would have been able to do testing, tracing, and isolating from the beginning and kept a very close eye on those numbers because we were actually able to quantify the extent to spread, we would be in a very different place. We might have had an approach like Taiwan's instead of an approach that was uniquely American and the fact that it was uniquely bad. <laughs> well, that, that's true about the scientific illiteracy. I, I, I suppose as someone who's been in, in scientific pursuits professionally and, and academically for some time, you, you, you kind of were forewarned about that being a bad American attribute, you know, slow to the gun when it came to respecting science. 
Yes, I do think that what we've seen is a unique conflagration of, of this distrust of expertise and this idea that you can kind of construct your own truth and own reality. And that really converged when it came to this pandemic. And we basically saw evasion at one of the highest levels uh, of the government that led everyone in the general public to think, you know, is this serious? Is this not serious? And made them distrust the experts, the ones that actually had the knowledge and capacity to be able to, to deal with a problem like this. And this is something that we hadn't seen before with an infectious disease emergency. We'd been through Ebola, we'd been through Zika, H1N1 in 2009, anthrax, uh, scares over bird flu. All of that had been handled much more adeptly because expertise and scientific knowledge were communicated well to the American public. There wasn't this kind of two narratives, one that's reflective of reality and one that's reflective of an unreality or a political spin on reality that made it very hard to craft any kind of public health messaging and actually infused itself into the way our public health agencies responded, like the CDC, for example. And, and we still haven't gotten that right. And I do think that's part of the story of this pandemic is how the human factors magnified what this virus was capable of doing. One of the non-human factors and, and one of the scientific factors that I think also made people distrust um, were the lack of clarity about contagiousness, um, specifically whether it's in the air or not in the air, and, and then the fact that so many of the tests would reveal at least, you know, initial tests. But even today, when this past week, a United States governor, governor of Ohio, tested positive, then the next day tested negative. And, and so my question to you, Amish, is with any novel virus, was it going to be the case that testing would be particularly challenging or is COVID unique in that respect? I would say that testing wouldn't have been a challenge if we would have done it appropriately. So if you take an example like South Korea, they did not have a problem with testing. They quickly engaged their private sector and were able to make drive-through testing a reality. And it took us months and months and we still haven't gotten there. And I think it goes back to the fact that early on in this outbreak, when the WHO had a test kit, the CDC decided for whatever reason to use their own test kit. And that test kit was flawed. It was only distributed to state health departments and it really decreased throughput. And I don't think testing should have been this hard and other countries have done it really well. And once we got our private sector and our university labs engaged, testing really got better. And we are doing 800,000 tests per day, even though we still have problems with turnaround times that are unacceptable for outpatient testing. And I think that's the, the problem. This wasn't something that was hard to make a diagnostic test. It was just self-inflicted wound after self-inflicted wound in the early days in January, February, and March. That's when the United States lost this battle with the pandemic virus. So why then is a test still reporting the wrong answer for a high-ranking government official? So you have to remember that no test is perfect. All tests have operating characteristics. And I'd like to know more details about Governor DeWine's test because many people in the general public think the test is just a yes or a no, that it's just a plus or a minus whether you have it or not. But actually it's 
quantifying a value, the PCR test. The PCR test will say how many cycles does the machine have to go through to hit a positive signal. And some people can be positive just above the border and they can be negative just below the border. So I suspect if you look at what are called the cycle thresholds of his PCR test, they were probably very close to each other, but kind of straddling the border. And that's why it was positive or negative. And this is one of the, the problems when you're testing asymptomatic individuals. Most of these tests are designed to test people who have symptoms. And from what Governor DeWine said, he didn't really have any symptoms. He said he maybe had a headache. Uh, and, and that may reflect the fact that the, the predictive value of the test isn't as good when you're kind of doing it on, on asymptomatic individuals. And but, but that's the, the novelty of this COVID-19. The, the, the fact that there are so many asymptomatic spreaders, sometimes super spreaders, we, you know, and, 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 I, and I just, to me, that is correlated with some element of the distrust and the incapacity to see the threat when, when folks talk about it kind of as, a, as an invisible enemy. I mean, that really is uniquely true of COVID. And, and so the question about whether any novel virus would be this hard to test, I mean, doesn't that somewhat relate to the fact that this virus you know, and tell me if there are other viruses that, that do what this is doing, but seems to have a unique way of asymptomatically seeding. And, in, in, uh, in, you know, there are other unique characteristics of the virus, but that seems to be one notable one. I would say that that's not necessarily notable for the coronavirus because influenza viruses are well known to be able to be transmissible a day before symptoms, kind of in the pre-symptomatic spread. And there are asymptomatic individuals with influenza that can spread it. So this is something that influenza does. But you have to remember that this was the seventh human coronavirus that we discovered. And four of those coronaviruses cause about 25% of our common colds. And looking at that data, there really wasn't much evidence that the family of viruses had the ability to do pre-symptomatic spread. And it might be because those viruses are rather innocuous and not, very, not studied very well, but there hadn't been any reports of the coronavirus spreading asymptomatically or even pre-symptomatically. And then we started to see some early reports from China, some early reports from Germany. And when you looked in detail, even at the, the early report from the choir in Washington state, there were actually symptomatic individuals there. So that really led people to think, you know, is it really asymptomatic transmission or is it people poorly characterizing their symptoms? You know, I've come to the position that I think that it's very hard for the general public to know whether their headache is from drinking too much alcohol the night before or whether their muscle aches are from working out at the gym too much or it's the coronavirus. And because of that, it becomes very hard to distinguish truly asymptomatic people, pre-symptomatic people who are going to go on to get symptoms or what we call posse-symptomatic people. And, and that's the issue is that, that there are so many people out there that have mild symptoms that they don't even attribute to coronavirus, or maybe they're pre-symptomatic about to get sick and they're contagious. And that's something that we hadn't seen or described with other coronaviruses, but seen with influenza. And that's why when 2009 H1N1 appeared, there wasn't any idea of trying to contain the virus because we knew that influenza had pre-symptomatic spread and asymptomatic spread, and that would be impossible to make, make it impossible to contain. And to the extent that this coronavirus has those characteristics, that's going to be the biggest challenge for actually getting a handle on this. So ultimately, the, whether we find out that it is one day or potentially three to five days where someone could be shedding the virus, that particular fact is, is not immediately going to be salient to fixing the problem, but it will 
ultimately be something that you can discover, right? How many days someone can be asymptomatically or presymptomatically contagious? Yes, and we do do that. When you get a positive test result and there's a case investigation and a case contact trace performed, they look at a period of time before you had symptoms of about a day or so. It's not looking back five days. So we do have enough epidemiological data to say this is the period of contagiousness or at least where the majority of contagiousness is from a day or so before symptoms to 10 days after symptoms appear. So that's how contact tracing and in case investigation is focused based on the epidemiology of when spread was likely to occur from an individual infected. And you know when you talk about the uniqueness of this virus you 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 know, and tell me again if this is a unique characteristic or, or not. If you look at comparable respiratory infections, again, you point out it's the only seventh known coronavirus. But the, the, the fact that while age and pre-existing conditions were attributed to a large number of the early infections, there has been a preponderance of medical and news reporting that has demonstrated that perfectly healthy people across every age group can get uh, fatally ill and die. And the diversity of outcomes, was that novel about this novel virus? So a couple of things there. So while it is true that every person is susceptible to this infection, there is no population level immunity to it. And you will find severe cases in every age group Severe cases and hospitalizations, if you look at the data, and even in my own experience of treating patients with this, they tend to cluster with increasing age and comorbidities. That doesn't mean that if you are young and healthy that you're, it's, you're impervious to the virus. It means you're likely to have a very mild case. When you look at other respiratory viruses, what we do see is clustering. For example, if we take influenza, the deaths and hospitalization in influenza tend to cluster in the very young and the very old. And that's true with many respiratory viruses. So in that sense, this does follow the, the pattern of other respiratory viral infections, that those with comorbid conditions, those with increasing age are more likely to be infected. Where it differs is younger people tend to be spared. And I mean children, for example, with influenza, Influenza will kill hundreds of children every year in the United States. This is not able to do that for whatever reason. Uh, children tend to be spared from the most severe consequences. It doesn't mean that there are zero deaths. It means that the deaths are lower and much lower than you see with influenza, for example. What are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis at your center at Johns Hopkins? Uh, we know about the tracking device and digital um, website and portal that folks can visit to access the, the latest numbers, but um, what, what kinds of uh, steps are you taking at your center to try to uh, not just track this pandemic, but alleviate it ultimately? So I work at the Center for Health Security, which is a think tank focused on infectious disease emergencies. So what we do on a day-to-day -day basis is think about what causes pandemics to occur? What are the cascading impacts of pandemics? And what policies can you put in place at a federal or a state level or an international level to be able to mitigate the risk of pandemics to prepare for them better? So we work a lot on trying to fix policy to understand how do you make the country more resilient to infectious disease threats? And as part of that, we do a lot of engagement with, with Capitol Hill, with, with other think tanks, with academics, trying to understand what went wrong, what went right, and how to make it better and, and think of a plan to put into place to 
to really decrease the harm that this virus is going to cause. And at the same time, never allow it to happen again by coming up with new programs and plans that could, could it, were they in place, might have stopped this. And we've been doing that you know, long before the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And we had written multiple papers on pandemic preparedness, prediction of pandemic pathogens, how to develop medical countermeasures and, and create economic incentives so that companies will make drugs against viruses that people don't really uh, care so much about. So that's a lot of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. I also see patients, uh, I, I see patients in the Pittsburgh area, so I take care of patients with coronavirus. I, I'm an infectious disease, critical care and emergency medicine physician. And I also do a lot of outreach to the general public and to the press about uh, infectious disease related manners. I mean, the, the, what you're pointing out, Amish, is the fact that you can have all the most sophisticated pandemic preparedness playbooks, and as, as long as they're sitting in your library, um, or as long as your governor or your, your president uh, is not heeding the science, it won't matter. And that's what I hear you saying about both the continuation of this crisis and the necessity for a vaccine, which may not have been the case if it had been under control. Um, but that is the reality. Is it not about pandemic preparedness? If you have a United States, a Brazil, uh, countries that are, that are basically failed states in their response and, and scientifically negligent, uh, by choice or, or by recklessness, you know, you, you can't respond to a pandemic successfully. Yes, no matter how good your planning is and how well your experts ha have thought about these problems and gamed them out, if the people in the executive branch, the people that have to execute the plan, do not believe in it, do not think it's a priority, think it clashes with their own view of this, it's not going to work. So as I said earlier, human factors are always going to be something that magnifies the damage that any pandemic can cause. And we've seen that from the Black Death to 1918 uh, to, to every infectious disease emergency. If the public policymakers are not in step with the science and the public health authorities, you will not get an optimal response and you will have a worsened uh, outbreak. And in its it's always going to be the case that we're going to have to not only come up with the best plans and predictions and understand the science, but also have to find a way to make policymakers and the general public realize that pandemic preparedness should be a priority. It shouldn't be something that goes through cycles of panic and neglect. It needs to be something that is sustainably funded, sustainably thought about, and not something that people only care about when it's in the headlines, but then forget about it. I mean, when's the last time people thought about Zika virus? Right. And what, what gives you the most hope at this point when uh, folks are they're hungry for hope if they're not already feeling defeated by the condition of public health, what I would call it, insecurity in the United States? There are many people that now are really galvanized to fix these problems in the United States and not allow this to happen again. And if you even look at the scientific approach to COVID-19. That has been going at breakneck speed with vaccines and phase three clinical trials, therapeutics, multiple different diagnostic platforms, so much understanding of the pathophysiology of a virus that on December 30th, no one had even heard of. Uh, all of that gives me hope that when humans use their minds and put their minds to this, that they can solve these problems, that they're not insurmountable. But we have to be given the resources and you have to have a respect for that expertise if you want to see these 
all of this innovation come to fruition and, and help move civilization further. I mean, people from the first vaccine that was developed by Edward Jenner in the late 1700s, it was opposed by the general public and his expertise was doubted. So I think that's an important lesson that if you have respect for the mind and you actually honor the, the, those individuals who are trying to, to make civilization better and safer from infectious disease threats, you will get that type of a world, but only if you recognize it. Right. And whether a pathogen, whether a disease becomes a pandemic or becomes something that, that is uh, severely infecting and killing the public, your, your brothers, sisters, moms, dads, you know, there is an extent to which that is in our control, even knowing mother nature, you know, at any moment, um, with with human interference or without interference, um, you know, can can uh, create new threats. But the the fact is that this this disease is is uh, has handicapped us because it paralyzed medical systems in our hospitals more than anything else, and there was no diligence when it came to. Um, social distancing from the outset or realizing how this thing spread. But uh, whether something gets to the point of pandemic or gets to the point of needing a vaccine, and sometimes, sometimes that is in our control. Yeah, I would say that this was destined to be a non-containable virus. It's a respiratory virus that spreads efficiently from person to person. So that wasn't going to be something that could be stopped the way SARS or MERS were because those didn't spread efficiently between humans. But what, what happened was the fact that there were so many missteps that it created the urgency for a vaccine in a way that you probably don't necessarily you wouldn't have necessarily had if things would have went better. But now the only way that the United States actually gets some modicum of control over this may be a vaccine. And that vaccine has to be uh, injected into maybe 70, 80% of the population to actually get that control. Because all of the basic public health, the crude public health types of things where you're thinking about social distancing and testing, tracing and isolating, the United States has failed at. They failed at it in January, February and March. And then they failed again in June, July, and August. And uh, so I only can think of a vaccine as the way out of this uh, and, and getting back to some uh, semblance of normalcy. But uh, it didn't necessarily have to be that way because countries like Taiwan, pretty, mo pretty much back to normal without a vaccine. Dr. Amish Adalja, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.